May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning. Looks like looking out over the crowd, I see we are in our winter finest. Is it? A little chilly out there, but it looks to be beautiful this afternoon, and I hope you enjoy your afternoon. But I thought I would begin our sermon by asking you a question. Do we have any George Carlin fans out there? Oh, a couple. I didn't know if people would be afraid to raise their hands or not, <laughs> since we are in church. But I recall a story from a young age long ago I heard George Carlin tell, which actually helps us dig into the heart of what the gospel is trying to tell us this morning. You may have, if those fans out there, you may have heard this story, but it goes like this. As a young boy, kind of teenage age, George Carlin, he, he would begin that, that questioning in that wit which he was known for. And he was in Roman Catholic school as a young boy. And he would pose a question to one of his teachers that just, we giggle at it, but as well, you can see there is some truth to his questioning as well. Because he remembers being taught as he tells the story, and he heard it, and immediately when he heard it, he said, well, I got to press back on that because I don't know if it's true or not. He was taught at one point, as he was a young teenager, that a good Roman Catholic, between the Wednesday of Ash Wednesday, between Lent began, and then when they celebrated Pentecost, if you didn't have communion. Just one time, it was a mortal sin, and you were in trouble. He heard that as an 11 or 12-year-old and said, well, let me ask this hypothetical question. All you, you can see the brilliance in his questioning. He raised his hand when he heard that and said, teacher, I need to ask you a question about the truth of that claim that you just made about taking communion at least once in that long liturgical season and how they rotate in between. The question would come, what if I, one weekend, was on a boat? And there was the captain of the boat who is legal and trained to do communion, and I wanted to take, had full heart, and I was ready to take communion out on the ship and all of a sudden, the captain bonked his head and had amnesia. Now, I had fully intended to take communion, but there was no captain to give it to me. And what if it was the, we're, in the, we're on the day of Pentecost and the, we were at midnight, meaning I had missed it, but then we crossed the international date line and I have one more hour until Pentecost what happens then? He tells this story kind of as one of those trying to trap the teacher with a hypothetical that actually has some truth and good questioning and reason behind it. But I thought that story served so well because we have that exact thing. Now, what I share is, is a comic story that a comedian tells to make people laugh. 
But we have to get real with what is happening with the Sadducees this morning. There is much more at stake as the Sadducees are with Jesus and they're asking him what seems on the surface to be a question to confuse, confuse him and trap him into proving that he is not the Messiah, that he would eventually say that he would be. Just like George Carlin trying to trap his Roman Catholic teacher that day, the Sadducees are trying to to use that same type of method with Jesus as our gospel opens up to us as Father John read. Now, what do we know about the Sadducees? And this is actually important. They're only mentioned once in the entire gospel of Luke. We often hear about the Pharisees, but the Sadducees are only mentioned once. But it is important to the larger scope of the gospel section that we have this morning. The Sadducees were wealthy, they were aristocratic, and they were also the ones who ran the temple in Jerusalem. So that's who they were in a simple nutshell to give us some context about this this whole thing. But it's interesting that it points out who is about to ask Jesus this trapping question. And it says, it goes on as we hear it's the Sadducees that did not believe in resurrection. And specifically in this case, resurrection meaning life after death. The Sadducees believed if anything was not in the five books of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the laws of Moses, if it wasn't collected there, it was not true anywhere else. And as the resurrection was not mentioned, at least to them, in the first five books of the Torah in the Old Testament, they said, well, the belief in a life after death and this resurrection that Jesus has been teaching about in the temple, it cannot be true. So this, this, this story, this hypothetical question they come up with to ask Jesus about marriage is them trying to disprove and discredit Jesus. And they think they've come up with the perfect way to do it. And this is the question that they ask to disprove Jesus and the resurrection. They said, well, Jesus, there is, one, there is a brother and based on our, those five books in Deuteronomy 25, there is this rule and law that if a brother marries and passes away, that the younger brother should marry the, the brother's widows so they can keep the to provide an heir and keep the family name going, as this was the original intent of marriage, was procreation to have children and to further the name and the bloodline. So they bring this question to Jesus. If that one brother dies and then the second brother also dies, and they, of course they extend this out, they go all the way through seven brothers who have the intent of marrying this woman and then having children, but they never get to the part of having, having sons to carry on the bloodline. Seven brothers die. And then the woman, the wife, eventually dies, and the bloodline stops there. Talk about tragedy brought up in a hypothetical story, but they're trying to trap Jesus. So they say, and this is the question they finish off with, Jesus, in the resurrection, these seven brothers that died, whose wife will she be? All seven 
or one of them. That's when they look at each other, kind of pat each other on the backs with a smirk and say, we've done it. We have trapped Jesus as we have an ironclad question that we have asked him to both discredit him and to disprove the resurrection that hadn't happened yet, but that he had been teaching about what resurrection was in the temple. And yet, to their surprise, they think they, they have discredited the country bumpkin. How could this, this guy, this perceived prophet, teacher from the back country of Nazareth discredit and be able to answer our question? And to their surprise, that's exactly what he does. He actually says, well, that actually is in a subtle and yet profound way. That is actually a very easy thing to answer. And you can see their faces begin to what? What, what is about to happen? As the gospel continues, Jesus uses two ways to answer this question that are both pertinent to them. And if you go one verse further than when the gospel stops, it says, good answer, Jesus. And they asked no more questions because of the way that he answered. He first he turns, he, he says, this idea of marriage that you are using to trap me in this question, you are trying to use this world things and this world experience to explain what life in the resurrection in the afterlife is like. Now, just like George Carlin was in that question he asked, he was trying to put this world hypothetical experiences with it very creatively, but to trap his teacher. That's what the Sadducees were trying to do, and that is Jesus' first answer to their question. You're trying to use marriage to say what things are life in the afterlife, in the resurrection. And we, as we read that, we probably think in our heads as we first read it, did, did that just say that there's no marriage in heaven? Well, what's the good news in that? And that is not actually saying that there is not intimate relationship and recognition of intimate relationship in heaven. It is saying there is no more use for the institution of marriage in heaven, but we will be there with the ones that we know and we love. That's not what Jesus is actually trying to tackle, but we can often read it that way and say, oh, that's what it is all about. What Jesus is saying is do not use modern day things in this life, the experience that you can know and see, and try to place that as a definition of the resurrection. It is much bigger and deeper and more profound than that. And theologically, Jesus ends even stronger than that as we close the gospel out this morning. He actually very profoundly but subtly says, you do not believe resurrection is found in the Old Testament, in those first five books of the Torah, but let me show you how it is. He goes all the way back to Exodus 3, the burning bush story, and he says, I am, as I claimed there, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And, he put, and he, this is the subtle point to the cross and to resurrection. He didn't state that by saying, I knew those guys way back when. I was 
their God. He didn't say, I was the God in past tense of Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob. He says, I am in the present tense. Now their deaths and burials had been recorded centuries earlier, told by story and then in Genesis. And yet he says, I am in present tense, the God of these founding fathers of religion. I am their God eternally and living today. That is the profound statement that points forward to Jesus's death and resurrection on the cross, that he is in relationship. Even though these men had died, he is still their living God and recognizes that they are alive in the afterlife in heaven. What a powerful, remember that story we opened up with, the Sadducees trying to trap Jesus and he has just foretold the coming, his coming death and resurrection on the cross and how we live into that. Those men, the God of Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob, all the saints that we remembered last week by name and in mind at All Saints Sunday, all the veterans in our military that have passed on and their sacrifice given in life, and then us. We are in that promise. God is our God. We are in relationship all the way back then in this life today, and then when it comes our turn to close our eyes in this life and open our eyes in the next the eternal and living God is the God of us all, and we remain in relationship with him in this resurrection life that he made possible for all of us. From what seems to be a simple and creative hypothetical question, Jesus answers and points to a great truth of the resurrection for us all. His grace his love and his mercy are so profound even today for all of us as we live into the promise of his resurrection and how it affects our lives until we pass on into the next. The resurrection makes it possible for us so. All praise and be to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who showed us the way of the resurrection life. Amen.